We're in Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're starting in verse 26. We're going to go through verse 39. And um, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for all the babies. And we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon them. And we ask for your blessing upon our church as we go about serving uh, children here, youth here, that so badly need you. So we ask, God, that you would equip us to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week's message uh, was about the storm that Jesus calmed. And, and when the disciples had landed in this country of the Gerasenes, some things started going through my head, and I was just wondering some things. And I was, I was wondering how that landing was. You know, after they're calming the storm, and they're just going there, and they're just talking with each other, like, wait, what's going on? Like, who is this guy? And, and once they land, what it was like for, for the disciples. And especially for, for the fishing pros here, right? Peter, James, and John. Especially for them. Because you, you recall back in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, when Peter, James, and John, they, they brought their boats to the land, if you recall. And it, and it says this, And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed Him. So I kind of wonder what was going on there in their head because that first time, they were like, oh yeah, I'm ready, let's go, let's go. And this time I'm wondering if they're just kind of freaked out, like, do, do we really want to go? Do, do I really want to get out of the boat now? And, and the difference being that Jesus wasn't in the boat with them the first time until this, this storm thing happened. And, and it's just quite a difference when Jesus is in the boat with you, isn't it? When Jesus is in the boat with you, you think things are going to be kind of more steady or predictable, but it's actually more adventurous. And so being with Jesus is, is quite different, and it's adventurous, because what happened after chapter 5, verse 11, after they decided to follow Jesus. Now, if people were to ask Peter, James, and John back then, you know, hey, how is it being a disciple of Jesus? Like, well, what's it like? How do you think they'd answer? Because there's no doubt here that, that people had that question for them, right? Family members, friends, curious people. You know, Jesus, Jesus is pretty well known here. And so we, we've read that all these crowds are following him wherever he was going. So that the disciples must have had all these questions from really curious people. Hey, what's it like following that guy? It must be pretty incredible. And so can you imagine their responses? What they would say. Could they, could they say that things just weren't very interesting? Could they say that? Right? They couldn't say that. And if anything, it's, it's interesting and it's fascinating. Interesting in that there are these guys, the Pharisees, who are so antagonistic with whatever was happening right from the get-go when Peter, James, and John decided to follow Jesus. I mean, it started pretty much right away, right? These Pharisees. You remember the paralyzed guy whose buddies, they bust open the roof to, to let their friend down to Jesus? And then the, the story of the ministry of, of vandalism starts right there in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. And so the, the scribes and the Pharisees are just not too keen on Jesus forgiving sins. And so Jesus asked them, Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Then Jesus said to them, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. That ticked the Pharisees off. That made them upset. Because they don't like to be shown up like that. 
Then they, there's a party at Levi's house where wearing jeans was the dress code. And and a group of these um, Pharisees and, and these scribes, uh, they, they were there, but, but they didn't want to wear their Levi's, so they were wearing true religion. And so, because they thought they were all that, you know. And so they didn't come to party, but they, they came grumbling and condemning Peter, James, and John and, and with questions like this. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So people may have asked, you know, hey, how is the food at that party, by the way? Because I heard that Levi throws like awesome parties. And, and Peter may have said, hey, that, that food rocked. I mean, you talk about hummus. That, that was a mean hummus. So, so what, did, what, did, what did Jesus say? Jesus told them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus said that to the Pharisees and the scribes. And so they're saying, they're thinking, Man, Jesus is the man. He, he's, he can stand up to those guys like that? He, he can do that? So being with Jesus is just really interesting, but it's also fascinating. Fascinating in that there are these ninja Pharisees that pop out from nowhere. Right? They just appear. And I don't know if you know this, but part of the religious training of these guys was stealth and nunchucks. Because do you know what nunchucks were used originally for? They were used to knock off the grains out of grain stalks. That's what they were created for. We think of, oh, Bruce Lee and martial arts weapons. They were actually a farming tool. And they were used to knock off grains off of grain stalks. And so here we are, and it says... Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Here's where the story is. It's the Sabbath. And the disciples are plucking grain and rubbing it with their hands. Then what happened? Ninja Pharisees pop up from the grain fields. Where they come from? And in their condemning ways, they are asking, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on Sabbath? Where did they come from? Poof. Just like that. Kung Fu theater. And then in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 6, there was another Sabbath incident with the scribes and Pharisees, and some of them wearing their true religion, others as ninjas, and here they are. And Jesus was in a synagogue, and he was preaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Jesus healed him, and then in verse 11 of chapter 6, the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So following Jesus is nothing short of interesting, nothing short of adventurous and fascinating, and it's especially when Jesus is in the boat. How so, someone might ask. Well, let's, let's, let's get to that in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 where we set across the lake. And you're thinking, why? Why do they go across the lake? To get to the other side. So, Jesus had this exhausting day of ministry, and He fell asleep as He sailed off, and then this crazy storm hits, and this is not a big deal, right? Because you guys have weathered some storms there before, especially Peter, James, and John. You know, you guys are fishermen. You guys have weathered storms before. But this one's different. This one, these guys think they're going to die. So what happens? Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. 
And there's a calm, an instant calm. And so now these guys are freaked out. What's going on here? This, I knew this guy could heal. I knew this guy could like, make more fish. I had no idea he could calm a storm. And so Luke records for us that they were afraid in Luke chapter 8, verse 25. It doesn't mention that they were afraid in the, during the storm, even though they probably were, but Luke doesn't explicitly tell us that. But Luke explicitly tells us that they were afraid after Jesus calms them. Now, if you were a family member, a friend, a, a curious person, inquiring of Peter, James, and John of their adventures with Jesus, what would you think after you're hearing all these stories of the things that Jesus did? I mean, these are pretty incredible adventures. Now let's turn that on us, on our adventures with Jesus. How about us? What if someone were to ask us about our adventures with Jesus? Now what would we be able to tell them? What's it like to be a disciple of His if someone were to come and ask you? What's it like to follow Him? What, what would you say? What would you share? Would, would what we share be kind of dull and uninteresting and repelling? Right? Oh, we, we got this cool building project going on. Or we've got, we've got this choir for the Easter service. And I'm not saying that those types of things are bad things. But are those the transformative things that we'd share about Jesus? And is that how Jesus Christ's impact on our life is to be shared? Like, what, what can we share? What is exciting? And I appreciate so much my dad's story of my great-grandmother coming to the Lord through a missionary. That, to me, is exciting. And to, to be carried out five generations later, that's exciting to me. Not a building project. Not... You know, stuff that the church is wanting to build its own kind of laurels and things like that. That stuff is boring. It's repelling to the community. So being a disciple of Jesus is and will be interesting. It will be fascinating. It will be adventurous. And it will not be an easy thing. And life with Jesus doesn't mean that we will live a life trouble-free. In fact, the Bible never promises that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And not only will there be trouble today, but He's saying it's going to be there tomorrow. You're going to have it. So just because you're a Christian, God doesn't make everything good for you. Good. Easy. So don't ever promise people what the Bible never says. You know, if you guys are praying with people or counseling with people and saying, oh, it'll all be all right. It might not. It might not. People will have to deal with the storms of their life. right? People will have to deal with the sicknesses in their life, in their families. People have to deal with death. The latest statistic I heard is it's close to 100%. Right? People will have to deal with an enemy that wants to destroy them. You're going to have to deal with that. And so now now we get to the text for this morning. And our text this morning gives us a glimpse of the numerous evils that affect us. That, That as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't exempt us from trouble, from pain, from suffering, from loss, from disappointment. We are not exempt from any of that stuff. 
So please don't go about lying to people about this. Oh, you're going to be a Christian. Everything will be okay. No, it's not. In fact, you're, you are guaranteeing them trouble. Because there's an enemy that's for real. So as soon as you say you're a Christian, get ready. There's a storm coming. And the Christian life doesn't have all these elements of of everything's okay and tucked in and looks nice and everything. It's not like that. We are a light into a very dark world. There is an opposition. And we need to tell people the truth. And we need to give hope to people, not by escaping those things and giving them these escape clauses that aren't true, but pointing them to Jesus. Pointing them to a community like ours to walk with them through their stuff. Verse 26, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. The country of the Gerasenes. What's significant about this? This was Gentile country. This is definitely Gentile country. And this is kind of the first recorded incident in Luke of Jesus venturing in to Gentile territory. And this was a place that was considered unclean to a practicing Jew like Jesus because it had several things going on here, which I'll get into a, li- into a little bit. But I think one of the reasons why they're going there, get away from the Pharisees. You need a break. Right? Because those guys aren't going to pop up over there. There's no, their, their true religion won't allow it. They're not going to venture into Gentile territory. They're, they can get a break. And so here, you won't find Pharisees and scribes in those parts where they sailed to. Verse 27, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now, why is this place really unclean? There's, I think there's four things in here that will tell us that it's unclean. One of the things that's unclean is graves and tombs. To a practicing Jew, this is very unclean. So if you go to Israel now and you look at the, I think it's the Western Wall. It is filled with tombs that the Muslims put there. It's a Muslim cemetery. Because prophecy says that Jesus is going to re-enter Jerusalem through that gate. So what do they do? Oh, Jews are afraid of going through tombs. Let's plant a cemetery there. I think they just didn't think that Jesus could be like, "Mm, I'll walk through Right? So, but that's why that's there. And so, this also included funeral processions. And do you remember what Jesus did to a funeral procession? Stop. In the name of love. And it was a name. It was a name. He rose a dead boy, which was taboo to touch this stuff, to, to go near this stuff, to be right in the center of a funeral procession. That is unclean. That's considered un- What else is considered unclean in this story? Demons. Demons are considered unclean. What else is? So we got Gentiles, we got demons, we've got tombs, we got pigs. Pigs are unclean. So all this unclean stuff, this is the epitome of unclean to a Jew. Right? Gentiles, tombs, demons, and pigs, oh my. Right? All this stuff. So how different this place was to the one that they just left across the lake. This is night and day. 
Right? This is night and day. There they were living, leaving like, oh, Jewish country, and we all agree on the same thing, and things are kosher, and no pigs over here, and all this stuff. And then they go over there, and there's like evil flying pigs when they go across the way. So here is verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Earlier on in the chapter... We had Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God from town to town, towns that were considered Jewish, but here we have Jesus' first venture into what would be considered a Gentile town. Different people, different place, different culture, different religion, same gospel. That the lessons of Jesus are the same for the Jews as it was for the Gentiles back then. That the parable of the soils is just as much for the Jews as it is for the Gentiles. And the response to Jesus is unfortunately the same. Because one would think that the people who observe such a change in this man, if you read on, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but if they noticed this change in this man, they would come to be followers of Jesus, you would think. But, but they're just like the soil where the seed, the, the, the Word of God, it fell along the path and it got taken away from their hearts. And who ends up being the good soil? Who ends up hearing the words of Jesus, holding it fast in an honest and good heart and bearing fruit with patience? The most unlikely of characters is the demoniac. The demoniac is the good soil here. And it, I mean, that's just ironic, don't you think? It was said in Luke chapter 8, verse 12, that the devils came and took away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And one would think that the demoniac who was already possessed by demons would fall into that category, but it is the townspeople who have fallen into that category. The demoniac really heard the word of God. He was the good soil. So, so you see how we can't judge people from the outside? How we can't judge like, oh, that person's hopeless. Because the people that you think are full of hope, that, oh, they'll be able to accept the Lord, whatever, they're actually that other soil. And you see people like the demoniac here, who you would think they would never. And here he is. Right, who would have ever guessed that the, the demoniac would be the one to have a relationship with Jesus in this town? And you notice in verse 27 that Jesus was met by him as if he were expected. And you notice how in verse 28, how Jesus was addressed as son of the most high God, as if he was known. How did that demoniac know that? How did he know that he was arriving? Now look with me to verse 25, where the disciples had this question. They asked amongst themselves, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? The very question the followers of Jesus had, his own disciples had, the demon actually knows this answer. Right? They know who Jesus is. James chapter 2, verse 19, James writes, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So people doubt the reality of Jesus, but you know what? The spiritual world does not. People who are solely reliant on the physical doubt the identity of Jesus Christ, but in the spiritual world, including the demonic world, they actually have a very orthodox view of God. 
That God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what people don't fully understand is that the spiritual world fully understands God. You and I might debate about things. People outside there who have, think that they have these bright minds and they have these brains and all these things and they want to debate all this stuff. We debate about understanding. In the spiritual world, there is no debate. They don't debate whether there is a God or not. They know. They don't debate whether they are good or not. They know. And so what is the first request of the demon? He begs Jesus not to torment him. I beg you, do not torment me. Why did the demon request this? In the sight of God, when he first sees him off the boat, why does he see this? Because he understands who Jesus is. He knows full well who Jesus is. In the face of God, what else can a demon do? What could he do? Think that he could win? In the face of God, unlike some of us, oh Jesus, I just don't agree with you. That would never happen in the spiritual world. This guy is begging. He is pleading for mercy from God. We're the only ones that are kind of cocky like that. Oh, God, I don't want to do that, God. No, Jesus, no. And some may think that this demonic activity, oh, that's something of the past. That, that doesn't happen anymore. I beg to differ. This is oh so present. Everything God has done, the devil has this counterfeit. Ever since the beginning of time. Right? Here's a fruit. Don't eat it. Oh, you can eat it. Ever since the beginning of time. Just like, there's always something, something there, counterfeiting, something going along the way. Always something right there. And just as God made Himself incarnational in Jesus, directly and in us through His Holy Spirit, Satan looks to do the same thing. He looks to do the same. He looks to occupy the minds and the thoughts and the bodies of people who open themselves up to his work. How is this done? Well, when you play with different things, you're in, inviting demonic things into your life. So whether they be in the form of games, in the form of horoscopes, in the, in the form of fortune tellers, palm readers, tarot cards, all that sort of stuff. All that fortune telling stuff you are inviting demonic powers to invade your space. That spiritual realm is a real realm. You and I might debate, oh, that's fake, oh, that's real, that's fake, that's real. The spiritual realm, there's no debate. It's real. And the end of that realm is to destroy you. That is the end goal of a spiritual realm, whether good or bad. The bad is there to destroy you. The good is there to save you. That is their end goal. So why does the demon beg Jesus? I beg you, do not torment me. Because that is exactly what they do to people. They torment people. That is exactly what they do. And they themselves don't want that justice for themselves. So he is begging Jesus, Jesus, don't torment me. I know I'm guilty of tormenting people. I know as a bad spiritual being, I am guilty of tormenting people. But please don't do that to me. And the second request from the demons is in verse 31. We'll get to that a little later. Let's go on to verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. 
growing up, I used to uh, walk back home from school, and there was this house that all of us kids would walk by, and it looked a lot like the house from Psycho. Have you seen that house? It looked a lot like that house. And um, the freaky part of that movie is the old lady looking at the screen like that. If you haven't seen it, you have to rent it. it it's cool. You'll think it's stupid because of all the technology we have in these days. But use your imagination and it'll be cool. And so we, as kids, we would walk home after we passed by the ice cream truck and bought noun laters and pico, you know, the Mexican candy, and garbage pail kids, things like that. I'm dating myself. All this stuff we're getting. And um, before, and then we walked by this house. And as all school children do, you make up stories. Oh, that house. They have a cemetery back there. And if you walk there, the, the old lady will grab you and bring you in. And, and so there was these old wooden steps leading to the house. And it, was all, it, was all, it needed a paint job. It needed all this stuff, right? And we would dare each other, hey, go, go touch that step. Go touch it. Just go step on it. And we were like pushing each other. Like, oh, no, no, no. And doing that whole thing. So no one ever touched that step. I wouldn't touch that step even to this day. So, and so one, day we, one day we walked by. And then the, the curtain kind of like moved. We were out of there. It was like, whoa! We didn't even see if someone was behind there. We just saw like it could have been the wind or whatever. We were out of there. And so the next day we walked on the other side of the street. Because we used to walk on this one and push each other into that fence. And so where I grew up, it was a nice little suburb called West Covina. But where I went to school was actually in the barrio. It was in La Puente. Right? So this... La Puente. I, I was at a men's breakfast, right? I was teaching at a men's breakfast a couple weeks ago, and there were some Mexican brothers there, and they were talking to me about my background and stuff like that, and they were asking me, oh, where I'm from and all this stuff, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm from West Covina, blah, 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 and they're like, oh, you're from West Covina, blah, 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 and I said, I went to school in La Puente, and went, La Puente? You Chinese boy went to school in La Puente? And they're like, yeah, I, was just, yeah, I grew up there, and so they were like, hey, Holmes, that's, a, that's hardcore, Holmes. And it's like, because quite a few of them were actually from that area and they moved to Oakland to get away from there. <laughs> so it tells you how bad it was down there. And so where I went to school was actually lower than most Oakland schools. I looked it up on greatschools.org just because I was interested. I was like, oh, I wonder where my school... Oh, I didn't know it was that low. But our school was lower than most, even in Oakland. And so, yeah, I lived in this nice suburb, but I, where I went to school, where I went, the kids I went to school with in that neighborhood, it was pretty rough. And, and, I, and I, I've heard from people who've kind of questioned me about urban ministry. Because, like, hey, how can a guy like you, grew up in a nice suburb, do urban ministry here? Like, how, you have no idea what goes on. You have no, and the funny thing is that when people ask me these type of things, I ask where they're from, and they usually grew up in a much nicer place than I did. Like, Please. Right? So, it's, it's funny. Anyway, I grew up going to schools in the barrio for eight years. And, and before my parents moved us out. And so, I grew up seeing the poverty of life. I grew up seeing the abuses of life in this area. Oh, my parents are in here, so I kind of hesitate to say these things. That's the first place I was confronted with sex, with drugs with gangs, all that stuff was in this area. 
my first fights were in this area. My first fight was in first grade, I think. I'm, I'm telling my parents all these things like right now. <laughs> but I was a tubby kid. I got teased a lot. I was a fat kid. And my name does not help. So I got in a lot of fights. But you know what I was afraid of? I was afraid of my mother more than I was of fighting. So I never told her. Hmm, everything's great. Right? I don't want to deal with her. She's tough. So, you know, I grew up in this kind of a place. I grew up in this kind of a setting. So, and the other thing, growing up, my mom's side of the family is actually from Mexico. And so I saw a lot of destitution in the people there in parts of Mexico that make Oakland look not so bad. Because we'd go down there pretty often. Growing up as kids, in the summertime, it felt like every week. I don't know if it was really that frequent, but it felt like that. And then during the school year, we didn't go that much. We went maybe holidays and once every several months or something like this. But things in Mexico are pretty bad. Otherwise, why do you think East Oakland is so populated with Mexicans? Because it's better even here than it is there. And so when we look at East Oakland, we're like, oh, it's rough, it's rough. Try going to where they're from. And I bring this stuff up because how many people do we just walk by? How many people do we just forget about? How many neighborhoods do we just kind of go by? And how many people groups do we just kind of go by, walk by, drive by, instead of engaging with them? Getting to know their stories. Because not all of them are as privileged. Yet we drive by and we walk by as they are just kind of like, entertainment for us or just kind of some spectacle for us like oh that's interesting that's really bad let's go back home oh that graffiti there that must be really bad I'm glad that's not in my neighborhood oh look at all that trash these people are so dirty let's go back to my neighborhood and we just treat it as a spectacle instead of engaging where people are at and how many people just want to keep certain neighborhoods and certain population groups under guard and bound with chains and shackles just like this demoniac. Keep them there. Keep them on that side of the freeway. And then when they can't be kept under control, let them out into the desert. Let them out into the urban centers. Let them out into deeper East Oakland. Let them out into deeper West Oakland. But don't bring them over there. Put them out that way. So you take a look at our homeless population, for example, and how our society has treated them. And I have to confess that the Bay Area is better than most. But there were places for those who weren't of sound mind before. More. More so before than what we have now, but with the lack of social services for them now because of economy or whatever else, many have been let out into society before they're ready before they have been made more whole. And there are those who are of sound mind and in the homeless population that they're totally fine, but there are many who are not. Now my question for us is, where would Jesus be? Where would he go? Because it seems like he went to the garrisons. See, Jesus is here for the homeless. Jesus is here for people like this demoniac who have been pushed out into society and forgotten about and wanting to be locked up and wanting to be kept away into places that people would never venture into. 
Keep them in a tomb. Keep them in a cemetery. Keep them under a freeway underpass or overpass. Keep them in the parks over there that none of the kids go to anyway. Let's just keep them there. And when we keep them there, then we're neat and tidy and we don't have to worry about things. And so, where would Jesus be? Because Jesus is there for those who aren't of sound mind. And, and so the sound mind and homeless people don't usually put those categories together, right? They, they don't think that those are synonymous. They think like, oh, homeless, then they're out of their mind. That's not necessarily true. There's some people that choose to be homeless. Most of them are in Berkeley. They're like these kids that come from privileged areas, and you're like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Kensington. What are you doing? Oh, my mom, my mom didn't let me do something. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And so if you talk to a lot of these kids out there, they actually aren't there because they don't have a choice. They have a choice. I'm not saying all, but I've met a few. I've met quite a few. And so for, for me, I'm so proud of the people at our church who have stepped into the forefront of serving the homeless in our population, in our community. I, uh, our staff and our interns they are here 24-7 serving the homeless population. 24-7. They are here. And then we have these other offshoot ministries that are in operation on, on Sundays and on Friday nights. And then throughout the week when there are special needs that the homeless population need. And so if you guys are here, Craig, Brian, Scott, David, Mancini, they kind of head up the Cross Streets ministry and they serve breakfast every Sunday morning. And then they head out to the homeless where they live out there every other Friday. And then serving the homeless has just been part of our church since year one. Right? And I'm glad that we're continuing to grow that ministry. When we were in Berkeley, we had these Sunday services right in the middle of People's Park. Right after our Sunday morning service, we had a Sunday service in People's Park. And, and then when we moved here, we had other opportunities open up for us. And we're just learning more and more about how to serve people year after year. And you know, ministry can be neatly packaged in that it's only Sunday. You only come Sunday and this is what you see. Oh, we got a service, we got the children's ministry, we got a homeless breakfast, and we got all this stuff on Sunday. Sunday looks so nice. What about the rest of the week? And this is something that I just find really great about our staff and our interns and the people that are here really often during the week. That they are here serving the homeless more than just Sunday. More than just Friday night, they just live it. They cross paths with them every time they cross the street. And they're serving them, and it's awesome. And in our text this morning, we find a man who has lost dignity as a human being. Here we find someone who has no standing in society. This guy has nothing. And, and it's as if he didn't even exist, viewed as an animal in the wild without hope to ever returning back to humanity. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. You go forward to Luke chapter 9, verse 40. It says this, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. This was one demon that the disciples that could not. And this was all the disciples for this one demon. 
Here we have Jesus, one Jesus, against a legion. And they're begging for mercy. Jesus is a bad dude. Man, and please don't go out there being afraid of the demonic world like oh I gotta worry I gotta oh I gotta keep them out and stuff like that I mean don't just don't mess with that stuff don't open yourself up to that stuff don't go looking for it but look for Jesus and you'll be good 1 John 4 chapter 4 verse 4 he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world just keep your eyes on Jesus you don't have to worry about defending against that stuff just go towards Jesus and you're good. Go the other way, scary. Verse 31, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. This is the second request from the demon. First, right, the demons begged Jesus not to torment him. Secondly, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, to, to get a better idea of the abyss, we have to take a look at the Old Testament. But essentially, it is where the dead are. Spiritually dead, where there is no longer any freedom to do anything, where they are forever damned in that place. Now, the demon knew he was before God, he was before Jesus, he was begging for mercy, and something they themselves don't have for people. They don't have that mercy for people, and the very thing that they can't give, they are asking for from Jesus. But they acknowledged that Jesus was capable of damning them there and right then. This is God. And what were these demons asking for exactly? What were they asking for? They were asking for freedom. They were asking for freedom. They were asking for a liberty, knowing that there was this not yet element to the judgment of God. That the ultimate judgment that God has has not happened yet. It's coming, but not yet. Verses 32 through 34. Now a herd, large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Is this a weird story or what? I mean, what's up with pigs? Why why do you have this pig stuff here? Now, there's a ton of different thoughts about why the demons entered the pigs and all this. Some are more believable than others. One of the more popular explanations, the one that I am most familiar with, is that the demons begged Jesus to let them enter the pigs because the demons knew that if they went into the pigs and then they got rid of the pigs, that the people in the town who were dependent on those pigs for their economy and their livelihood, they would be so upset at Jesus that they would not accept him and they would deem him a troublemaker who destroyed their local economy, and rather than people accepting Jesus Christ, they will run him out of town. That's the one I'm most familiar with. That's the one I've heard most growing up in my life. And that makes sense to me. I just don't know if that's what really is what happened. It's a a great theory. But all I can really take away from this text, what I can really take away in terms of fact, is that Jesus allowed the demons to go into the herd of pigs. In terms of fact. That he allowed that. And I think we can come up with a ton of theories when it's possible that what we're asking for, what we're looking for, isn't the main point of what's happening. 
So now I'm not talking about application of text, okay? I'm not talking about application. I'm talking about the questions that we ask from the text that nobody can really answer or that nobody can really know. And we can come up with all these thoughts, but we really don't know. Questions like this. Can, can animals be possessed if not given permission? I don't know. I really don't know. But I think so because I've met some of your cats. They're possessed. And I don't, I don't think dogs can be possessed by demons unless they're scratched or bitten by a cat. And so questions like, what happened to the demons after the pigs died? I don't know. They went into the fish? That the cat ate the fish? And that's how cats are possessed. I don't know. Or questions like, why did the demons want to go into the pigs rather than the cats? That they already had a history of indwelling. I don't know. Questions like, why did Jesus allow for the pigs to be possessed by the demons in the first place? Because of cats. And I have all these thoughts, but I really don't know. Right? We, we really don't know. And there are things that we simply don't know. And you remember all those questions you have, and you save them for the next guest speaker who teaches here. And then you can ask them. So, what I do know is that Jesus loved that man who had legion in him. I do know that. And I know that Jesus loves people. I know that. Jesus loved this man, the whole of him, and valued this man significantly more than a large herd of pigs. And for Jesus to give permission for the demons to go into those pigs, resulting in their drowning, shows that Jesus values the sanity, the wholeness, the conversion, the transformation of this one man more than a large herd of pigs. That's what I can gather from it. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus or God does not care for animals. So before you go calling PETA, He does. God does. But let's not take it to the extreme where we value the life of humans as equivalent to the lives of animals. Because they are not. Or take it to the other extreme. The opposite extreme where we don't care for animals at all, yet we're called to be stewards of them. Because I think that we tend to do that. You have these really liberal circles that are like, oh, pro-animal, pro-animal, and the same thing. We're on the same thing. We're, we're both life. And then you have the other extreme where you have these conservatives who, we don't care about animals. They're just animals. Big deal. Just animals. And what God has created for us is to be stewards over them. To be stewards. We are not to abuse them or, or treat them as garbage. We are stewards. But we are also not to treat them as equals amongst the human race. So only we were made in the image of God. Only we have souls, not other animals. So we were made to be stewards, not equivalents of the animal world. And as humans, we have a purpose, we have a meaning to our lives that are beyond the survival of the fittest. It's beyond naturalism. It's beyond our own self-preservation and self-interest. It's being in the, made in the image of God. That is us. And so there's this higher purpose. But let's not forget that the Lord values even the sparrows, right? 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? There's value there. Even though it's small, it's a penny, but there's still value there. And then Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 31, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. It's the same thing here. This guy and this large herd of pigs. He is of much more value than that large herd of pigs. It's not saying that those pigs are valueless. It's just that they're not as valuable. And so animals are valued by God, but we are of more value. And God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Not to redeem animals, but us. And although I do believe that all dogs go to heaven, we still have to keep this in mind. Right? Jesus valued the soul of one man much more than a large herd of pigs. And you would think that the people of the town, they would want Jesus to stick around and teach them a thing or two about having a transformed life because they just saw this demoniac being transformed and you would think that he, that's what they would want. But that's not what happened. Verses 35 and 36. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Now this is what Jesus was talking about when he was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what Jesus was doing here. This is Jesus quoting from the book of Isaiah. Verse 37, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. What happened here? There's something really fascinating happening here. Because Jesus does this wonderful thing. He sets this man free from his oppression. What do the garrison people do? They ask him to leave. What does Jesus do? He agreed. He got into the boat and he left. Now, what happened when the demons asked Jesus to let them go into the pigs? Jesus agreed. They went into the pigs and off the cliff they went. Now what happened when the man who once had demons in him asked Jesus if he could follow him? Let's read that, verses 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus agreed to the request of demons. Jesus agreed to the request of Gentiles who don't believe in, in him and the garrisons. Jesus doesn't agree to the request of the one he just healed and accepts him and wants him. Jesus said no to the one that he loves. And this is so different to what we would think would happen, wouldn't it? Or isn't it? I would think that he'd agree to the one that he saved. 
Oh, you're, you're with me. Anything you want, I'm going to give to you. Wouldn't you think that? But it's, it's not that way. It, it, it's not the demons that he rejected. It's not the garrisons that he rejected their request. He, he agreed to their request. Leave, okay. Go into pigs, okay. Jesus, I want to come with you. No. So initially, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I thought, if I accept you, wouldn't you say yes to me? If I agreed to be with you and do things, wouldn't you? I mean, this guy was just set free from, by Jesus. And of course he wants to follow Jesus. Why won't Jesus agree to this? Isn't this bizarre? What does he say? Return home. Return home? Yeah, go. Can't be with me, go. So something interesting about this. You remember in chapter 8, verse 21, when Jesus said, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Did he hear the word of God and do it? He did. That's a real brother. That demoniac is a real brother. Those other ones... They couldn't even hear. They just was like, go away, go away, or let us go do this or that. They couldn't even hear. And Jesus sends this guy back to his home. Every, and so when people think like, oh, Jesus doesn't care about family. He's saying like, oh, be against brother and mother, and he only cares about the church family. He doesn't care about familial ties and stuff like this. Really? Where is the first place he sends this guy? Home. Go home. Go tell, I don't know if he was married or not, or if he had children, but let's say if he did, go tell, go tell your bride there that you're okay. Go show your kids over there that you're okay. Go show your mom and dad that you're okay now. You know, you, 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 can, you can do that. He could have just gone with Jesus on the boat and went, and no one would ever know. Well, I guess they would hear, like, oh, he got well and he left. Why didn't he come back? Who knows? But here we have all these these issues of, of these questions we don't know. Like, these are it. Everyone knew who this guy was. Everyone knew he was once out of his mind. Everyone knew that he was the naked guy that ran crazy around the tombs, that breaks chains and no one can contain him and, and has all this stuff going on. Everyone knew about him. Jesus makes him whole. Who better to be a missionary to their own people? Who better? Who better to be a missionary than to his own family? So Jesus got on the boat, a regular thing to do last week. He started sailing away, falls asleep, he calms the storm, lands in Gentile land, he heals this demoniac, marginalized, hopeless man. So Jesus healed him, transformed him, converted this Gentile man in the country of the Gerasenes, and then he leaves. This reminds me so much of Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He went there for that one guy. I mean, who else is converted here? He's that one sheep. And how many of us are like this man? Right? 
The interesting thing is if you go here now to the, where the Gerasenes, where they think that the thing, the pigs fell and stuff like that, if you go to that place now, there is a church there. An old church of antiquity there. And it's a pretty large church, meaning that there were a lot of Christians there. From this guy. From this guy. And so when we think, yeah, oh, most of us are in our right mind and we're clothed. But how about being clothed spiritually? Let's not think about physically. Spiritually. Are we clothed spiritually? Spiritually, is there someone here that is naked? Is there someone here who is amongst the 99, but there's one of you here? And is someone here hiding amongst the 99, hiding amongst the church? And are you hoping to blend in as just one of the 99 that you don't want to be picked out by Jesus? You just kind of want to fold in here because you like it for whatever reason. But you don't really know Jesus. Because Jesus is concerned for the individual. Jesus is concerned for you. And for any of you who are oppressed, for any of you who feel marginalized, demonized or whatever, Jesus is for you. He will travel across the lake, go through a storm, go through disciples that question Him, go through a whole town that rejects Him, go through demons who are going to oppose Him, many of them, just for you. Just you. He's concerned for you. And He's looking for you. And Jesus is looking to transform you, to deliver you, to rescue you. It has nothing to do with religion. It's, this is about Jesus wanting a relationship with you, desiring to, go, to get to you no matter what, to get to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your pursuit of us. Lord, we thank you that uh, you love us so much that it doesn't matter how beat up we are, how torn we are, how oppressed we are, that you are for us. I pray, Lord, for blessing upon people here that if there is a one amongst the 99 here, Lord, that they would soften themselves up enough, Lord, to accept you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.